thank you very much. Uh, my name is Adam Grant, or uh, I think you could just call me Adam 2 today if, if you wanted to, since Adam 1 is uh, out of the country doing some mission work in uh, Nicaragua. But I do serve on staff at uh, Franklin Christian Church here in town, and I believe that this is uh, the third time uh, that you have graciously given me an opportunity to uh, come here and share with you on a Sunday morning. So I told uh, a couple people, I think, that that tells me that at least I know I haven't said anything too offensive the first two times, uh, or at least if I have, you've been nice enough to keep it to yourself. So thanks for that. That makes me, makes me feel pretty good. It lets me know you're, you're nice folks here. But I've been looking forward to this opportunity to uh, be back with you and to worship with you and to commune with you and to share with you uh, since Adam 1 asked me if I could come and, and do that several weeks ago. It's good to be with you again. Our text this morning is going to be from the book of Matthew, uh, chapter 4, starting in verse 18, going through verse 25, and then we're going to get into chapter 5 a little bit as well, verses 1 and 2 and verse 6. And I'd like to start off this morning by reading these verses, and uh, I'd invite you to uh, join me in doing that as you like, if you like to do so, uh, starting in Matthew 4, verse 18. As he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fish for people. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. As he went from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John, in the boat with their father Zebedee, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately, they left their boat and their father and followed him. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and curing every disease and every sickness among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all the sick, those who were afflicted with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, and paralytics, and he cured them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up to the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to speak and taught them, saying, verse 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they will be filled. This is the word of God. When Adam 1 and I sat down together a few weeks ago to catch up on life and ministry, I was very much encouraged to hear his vision and his resolve for where he would like to lead this church, Aspen Grove, with, with God's help this year and even years ahead. I hope you've been encouraged by the last uh, few weeks of sermons on rhythms of life, Rhythms of work and rest and prayer, which are tremendously important things to talk about, I think, especially coming out of the mayhem of the holidays. So as we talked about building on these rhythms of life and looking ahead to the focus of this year and even years ahead here at Aspen Grove, our conversation centered on the word discipleship. Now, discipleship is a word that piques my interest. 
in large part because my title on staff at Franklin Christian is Discipleship Minister. So when I uh, see a book with the word discipleship in the title, or uh, when I overhear a couple of ministers at at the table next to mine at at Frothy Monkey talking about discipleship, my antenna sort of goes up and, and I try to catch up on what's being written or what's being said about discipleship. And I don't know if Adam, one, invited me here today because he thought, well, surely this guy knows something about discipleship since he's like a discipleship minister or something like that. But I do get a lot of questions about what exactly it is I do as a discipleship minister. My favorite, maybe, is when a friend of mine is introducing me to someone and they say, hey, this is my friend Adam. He's a discipleship minister at a church here in town. So, so he works with our, um, or you, you organize our like, uh, wait, 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 what do you do? <laughs> and I'm like, oh, thanks. I'm glad, glad you know me so well. That's cool. Good to know that. But when you think about it, discipleship minister really is kind of a, a terrifying title to have for a job. Because to some extent, it implies that you have a certain level of expertise about how to live the Christian life, which is what discipleship is all about. It's this all-encompassing call and commitment to giving your all to Jesus and submitting to him daily as Lord. And I strive to do my best daily to live as a follower of Jesus, as one of his disciples, to spend meaningful time with him, to seek God's guidance in how to make disciples in the congregation where I serve, to set as good an example as I can for those around me. But I'll just be honest with you guys this morning. I don't feel like a discipleship guru. Despite spending time researching and writing and learning from others and trying out discipleship models, I just feel like I'm beginning to glimpse the tip of the iceberg of what this all-encompassing life of discipleship means and how to make disciples as a follower of Jesus. Now, on the one hand, it's so very simple, right? Jesus approaches a couple of fishermen named Peter and Andrew and says, follow me. And they drop their fishing nets and follow him. Just like that. Nothing to it. Just follow Jesus. Or if we wanted to flesh it out a bit more than that, we could say, trust in God's love and forgiveness, repent of your sins, be obedient in baptism, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, love your neighbor as yourself. That's all there is to this life of Christian discipleship. But then when, when we start on this journey of following Jesus, we discover that trusting in God gets much harder when you lose your job unexpectedly. Or when the old sinful habits you thought you had kicked keep plaguing you, or when the test results don't come back the way that you were hoping and praying they would. And loving your neighbor sounds great until you get to know your neighbor, right? And you find out they're hard to love. They slack on the job. They don't discipline their kids the way you do. And, and then they go and they, they stick a, a sign right in the middle of their front yard, that has the name of a presidential hopeful on it that just makes you go, yeah. I mean, how are you supposed to love that person, right? 
Besides this, discipleship is hard to quantify. I mean, how do you know when you're growing spiritually? Discipleship is not a journey with a definitive endpoint in this life where we can one day declare, I've made it. I've arrived. I've reached level 100 disciple. Da, 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 da. There's no more growing I can achieve as a follower of Jesus. No. There are always more ways we can grow. More ways for God's spirit to mold us into the likeness of Jesus. Which I guess is part of what makes discipleship such a marvelous journey. And then there are just so many things out there that compete for our time and our attention and our allegiance that draw us away from a total commitment to Christ. The American dream is one. It says the larger salary, the bigger house, the nicer car, this is what you should be pursuing. The political machines are another. They say, put your trust in our candidate on election day because we will make life better for you. Then there's the advertisers. They say, this product, this store, this image is what you need to have the good life. And so we're just bombarded from all angles with these messages that compete for our attention and pull our desires in different directions. And all these messages, they morph into this cacophony in our hearts of competing messages that try to tell us what is most important in life. Yet in the midst of this seemingly insoluble tangle of cultural narratives, Jesus stands in the middle of that chaos and says, follow me. Yes, I know the way will be hard, he says. I know you don't have all the answers. I know you don't have your life together. Just follow me. It's what he said to Peter and Andrew, and it's what he says to us today. We might think that we're unique in our day and age with how difficult it is to follow Jesus, with how corrupt the world is, with all the things out there to distract us from having an undivided allegiance to Christ, but I really don't think we're all that unique. Think about the world that Peter and Andrew lived in. Now, sure, they didn't have social media. They didn't have TV and radio commercials uh, to distract them. They didn't have Netflix binges just around the corner. But you know what they did have? Roman oppression. They lived with the daily reminder that they as Jews were under the rule of Rome. And so they were looked on as less than by the ruling Roman Empire. What do you think that daily implied message of inferiority does to a person's psyche over a long period of time? Not to mention the fact that as rural fishermen, they were on the lower end of a social ladder that basically had no middle class. You had the rich ruling class and everyone else. The powerful elite and the peasant workers. And the powerful elite used the peasant class to sustain their extravagant lifestyles. The majority of this ruling class lived in the urban centers, but they also largely owned the land that the peasants lived and worked. So they imposed rents and taxes on them to siphon off their production. Not only were Peter and Andrew Jews in a Roman world, but they were peasants in a rich man's world. 
So under this tyranny, a movement started to form. Jews who were tired of Roman oppression, who were done paying taxes to Caesar, who couldn't sit around and wait any longer for the Messiah to come and liberate the Jews from subjugation. This group decided they need to take matters into their own hands, stand up against the Romans. And maybe then, just maybe, God would then see fit to send the Messiah. And in this nightmarish era of foreign rule, as whispers of this revolutionary movement started to circulate, being part of something like this may have sounded pretty good to a couple of rural fishermen. A couple of men who got out of bed in the mornings and returned to their fishing boats, knowing that they were squarely under the thumb of an oppressive Roman system that offered little hope of escape for the peasant class. That is, it sounded pretty good until they passed by some criminals on the roadside who the Romans had crucified, and they realized that could be them if they joined this zealot movement. Yes, our world is difficult, but we are not alone. So Jesus steps into the lives of Peter and Andrew, men who were beaten down by life, who perhaps wanted to stand up to their oppressors, but may have been more afraid of what would happen to them if they did. And he says, follow me. Leave the one thing behind that gives you a sense of stability in life your vocation, menial as it might be, and follow me. And guess what? They did. They and their old fishing buddies, the Zebedee boys, James and John, left their fishing gear and followed Jesus. Isn't that just maddeningly simple? Come on now, Matthew, what are you leaving out here? There had to be more to it than that. I mean, who in their right mind would just drop everything to follow a stranger who walks up to you and simply says, follow me? I wish you would have filled in the gaps here, Matthew, so we could see Jesus' full sales pitch of how he really convinced them to follow him. Or maybe the simplicity of it is the whole point entirely. Maybe there are no gaps to fill in. No sales pitch is needed. When Jesus says, follow me, no further explanation is required. Peter and Andrew, James and John, had an encounter with Jesus. And because Jesus is who he is, immediately they followed him. And so these four remarkably ordinary men became the first disciples. What is Jesus calling you to do that you're resisting? Who is he calling you to love? Where is he calling you to follow his lead? Disciples obey their leaders when they say follow. So when Jesus says, follow me, no further explanation is required from those who 
count themselves as followers of Jesus. Have you ever made a split decision that drastically changed the direction of your life? Could be for good or bad? Well, this decision that Peter, Andrew, James, and John made to immediately follow Jesus was one of those decisions for them. Because after they start following Jesus, big things start happening and fast. They followed Jesus into the local synagogues as he taught and proclaimed the coming of the kingdom, and they followed him as he gave these people glimpses of the coming of the kingdom by healing sicknesses and diseases. Not only was this man an authoritative teacher, but he was also a healer of diseases. Now, people might make a special trip to church to hear a famous preacher, but you'd better believe people are going to come out of the woodwork if there's a guy going around who can make pains go away, who can cast out demons and make paralytics walk. Because even if you don't have any of these afflictions yourself, you just don't get to see good exorcism every day. We've got to get out and see this guy, right? And all of a sudden, because of Jesus, Galilee, the rural peasant farming region was teeming with city people. Even people from Jerusalem were making the trip out to Galilee to see this Jesus. Now, this would be like thousands of people leaving Nashville to go to Columbia, let's say, for their entertainment, right? Now, yes, Mule Days is a -a one-of-a-kind cultural event that everyone should experience, And maybe you have your occasional East Nashville hipsters who want to go down to Columbia to catch a glimpse of a real-life farmer. Okay, that, that might happen. But you don't see thousands of people leaving Nashville in throngs to go down to Columbia or Lewisburg, right? But that's the kind of thing that's happening here, though. So in a short matter of time, these four disciples had gone from the hopeless grind of fishing life to being in the inner circle of the life of this man who was taking the region by storm. He had masses, swarms of people flocking to him. And and you would think this would be his time to act. Maybe that's what the four disciples were thinking. Can you believe all these people? Look at how much excitement there is. What if Jesus could rally all these people to stand up to Rome? I don't know if we'd win, but we could sure put up a fight. When Jesus, though, saw the crowds, he went up to the mountain. This was perhaps the first of many lessons the disciples would learn that Jesus does not operate by the rules, values, or expectations of the prevailing culture. You see, the mission had begun. Jesus, through his early ministry in Galilee, had been proclaiming the coming of God's kingdom. A lot was happening quickly. He was healing people, attracting crowds, creating tremendous buzz. Now it was time for him to go off into the hills and teach his disciples what he means when he says the kingdom of God has come near. It was time to introduce them to the values of his kingdom. And so he goes up into the hills, he sits down, he begins to teach them. 
Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. What do you think these words would have meant to the disciples as they heard them from the mouth of Jesus? Might they have been hungry and thirsty from their long trek, their long trek up into the mountains as they were following Jesus, who was inexplicably leaving the crowds behind? Surely they were hungry and thirsty for more than just literal food and drink. Maybe they hungered for influence. This was something they didn't have as fishermen, but it seemed to be within their grasp now that they were following Jesus. Or surely they thirsted for justice, for their people to be liberated, for the poor to be given opportunity, for the Messiah to make all things right. Might the disciples have been wondering if this Jesus could be the Messiah? But Jesus says to these young, green disciples, in my kingdom, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, those who desire to conform to God's standard, will be blessed. Can you recall the hungriest or the thirstiest that you have ever been? I remember a time when I was in middle or high school. I can't exactly place what year it was. But I was on a retreat with my youth group at Smoky Mountain Christian Camp. And our youth minister at the time thought it would be a good idea to take us on this hike up the side of a steep, steep hill. Now, the hike wasn't super long, but, but the hill was very steep, and there was no trail. So we were just blazing straight up the side of, of this mountain, kicking through uh, leaves and, and brush. And it, it turns out that none of us were really very well equipped for this hike. We didn't have the right kind of gear. And let's just say we weren't the most athletic youth group that there ever was. <laughs> and when we finally got to the top, we were wiped out. I mean, wiped out. And we, we realized that we only had two bottles of water uh, to share among the, the dozen or so of us who were up there. And do you know that kid in, in gym class who's the water fountain hog? It's like you've all just run the mile or something, and, and there's this long line of people standing to get a drink of water, but there's that one kid who just keeps gulping and gulping. It's like, come on, man, like we're thirsty here. Well, that kid was in our youth group, and his name was Tim. And Tim got a hold of one of those bottles of water, and, and when he did, we knew that there was no resting away that bottle of water from Tim. We, we knew it was over. We knew the rest of us would be sharing that one little bottle of water that was left. But man, was that one swallow of water so satisfying. In God's kingdom, those who hunger and thirst to conform to his standard will be satisfied. What an encouragement this and the other Beatitudes must have been to these disciples. As Jesus begins his first major discourse to his disciples, he doesn't start off with commands. He doesn't say you must conform to the cultural economic standards of wealth to be blessed in my kingdom. 
In fact, he says quite the opposite of that. He doesn't say you must adhere to a strict pharisaical observance of the law. No. Hunger and thirst, genuine desire for righteousness is what makes a person blessed in my kingdom, Jesus says. And I love the word at the end of this verse that is translated as filled or satisfied. Jesus uses an emphatic word here that was used synonymously in that day for the fattening of animals. It implies being well-filled or even stuffed. So those who hunger and thirst for righteousness and God's kingdom will be stuffed. The kind of after-Thanksgiving dinner stuffed where you haven't had anything to eat all day because you're anticipating this one huge, amazing feast. So you fill your plate to the edges, and then when you finally push back from the table after enjoying this lovingly crafted meal, you are so stuffed that just the thought of more food practically makes you dizzy. Which doesn't stop you from eating four more deviled eggs, but still, we're talking that kind of stuffed. Except in God's kingdom, the more God satisfies your hunger and thirst for him, the more and more you desire of him. The more you, hu- the more you hunger and thirst, the more that increases as you live in this daily state of both increasing hunger and thirst for God and increasing satisfaction of that desire from God. We're talking the kind of thirst where you've been on a grueling hike to get to the top of a mountain and your mouth is bone dry. Except when you get to the top of the mountain, there's more than just two bottles of water. There are fountains on top of fountains on top of fountains that you don't just drink from, but you completely immerse yourself in them so that your thirst is totally satisfied. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. I am not a discipleship guru. I haven't developed a foolproof model for how to make disciples. I can say pretty confidently that there's more to this journey of discipleship that I don't know than I do. But I think that desiring God might be a pretty good place to start. My prayer for you here at Aspen Grove as you begin this focus on discipleship and for the congregation where I serve at Franklin Christian, for the church in Middle Tennessee, and for the church everywhere, is that God would sanctify our desires. That our desire to chase the American dream or to have the coolest stuff or to achieve the perfect image would pale in comparison to the utter hunger and thirst that we have for God. Discipleship is a strenuous journey. We will get tired along the way and we'll become hungry and thirsty. So above all, let us hunger and thirst for God who can truly give us what we need to be satisfied on this journey. Let's pray together. Holy Father, in a world where there are so many things that compete for our attention and our allegiance, our hearts can become confused with what to chase after and with what brings satisfaction in life. 
Our fervent prayer to you this morning then, Lord, is that you would sanctify our desires by your spirit so that our desires for you and it's for you alone because we believe that you are worthy of our desire and that true satisfaction comes only from hungering and thirsting for you. Sanctify our desires, O Lord. This we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.